0: Welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 11. Today we address the letter to the church at Thyatira. This is found in Revelation chapter 2, 18 to 28. Now we kind of divided the last couple of messages up into littler pieces. This one truly speaks kind of as an entire unit. So let's jump right in. Then write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like tongues of fire, and his feet as molten bronze. I know your works, namely your love and faithfulness and service and endurance. Your recent behavior, in fact, is better than your earlier behavior. But I hold against you that you have tolerated that woman, quote, Jezebel, end quotes, who calls herself a prophetess and who teaches and deceives my servants to commit ritual fornication and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now I have given her time to repent, but she did not want to repent of her fornication. So behold, I will cast her into a sickbed, and I will cause those who committed fornication with her great tribulation if they will not reject her behavior.' Then I will kill her children with the plague. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you in accordance with your deeds. Now I will say to the rest of you in Thyatira, you who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what people call the secrets of Satan, I will not put any further burden upon you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. And to the one who endures and the one who keeps my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter and crush them like shards of pottery under his feet. Just as I received it from my Father, I will give the morning star to him. Let the person with an ear hear what the Spirit proclaims to the churches. Well, there's a lot here, of course. Thyatira is a little bitty community further inland uh, from Pergamum. We've now turned over to the east towards Turkey, and we've, we've traveled about 40 miles inland. And here is Thyatira. It sits on a major trade route, so it holds those things in common with the first three churches. But it's small. Um, It's not nearly the metropolis that Ephesus is. It's not even as big as Pergamum. It's a small city, but it's known for specialized trades. Uh, There are historical records of trades uh, unions already existing in Thyatira, um, guilds, especially of coppersmiths and of makers of colored cloth, especially a particularly beautiful shade of purple cloth. Purple is a very hard color to create in nature. Uh, the, The things that you can borrow purple dye from are very rare. And so purple was an esteemed color of cloth. In, I think it's Acts chapter 16, we meet Lydia, who is a dealer in purple cloth, and she's from Thyatira. So there's kind of a connection there other than that we don't really know much about Thyatira except what we read here and what we read here is not out of line with what we've read uh, to the other churches Um, but this church in Thyatira has a particular issue going on within its uh, within its walls and so the Holy Spirit says I know your works your love your faithfulness your service and your endurance Well, there's a lot of good stuff there, right? In fact, he says, recently you've behaved better than you did at first. They're coming along, they're growing, they're maturing. They are bearing better fruit. But he says, I hold this against you. You have tolerated. The word here can also mean forgiven. You have made a place for that woman and he calls her Jezebel. Now, it's in quotation marks. That's probably not her real name. She's representative. Who was Jezebel? Well, she was the wife of King Ahab way back in the Old Testament in the time of Elijah. She was a Canaanite woman, and she was married to King Ahab as a way of bringing peace between their Canaanite people And the Israelite people of that day. Now, the Israelites had been commanded by God to wipe out the Canaanites, to get rid of them, their gods, their pagan worship, the whole nine yards. Well, remember, the Israelites had gone into exile in Egypt. And who were they? Well, they were the children and the grandchildren and the great grandchildren of Jacob, who had stayed back. In what we call Israel? Well, the families of Jacob, the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. These are their cousins, literally their cousins. And so they've come back to the promised land in the Old Testament and they're called to wipe them out. Of course, they don't want to do that. They're family. And so while there are some tribes that they do wipe out most of the time, they compromise, and Jezebel is the symbol of that great compromise. Her name is Jezebel. Her her false god is even part of her name, and her people worship Baal, and they believed that Baal brought prosperity. He brought fertility. He brought harvest. He brought rain. He brought everything you needed to have. Uh, Sustenance and prosperity. And so she gets her prophets to compete uh, with Elijah. And Elijah, you know, challenges them at the top of Mount Carmel. And they call down fire and fire doesn't come. And Elijah calls down fire and fire does come. And that makes Elijah the winner. And he puts to death all the prophetesses and the priestesses and the prophets of Baal Uh, who served Queen Jezebel, and the story goes on from there. Elijah runs off into the desert to to hide from Jezebel, suddenly afraid, and then God brings him back and restores him and restores Israel. Jezebel becomes representative of that influence of compromise. And so she's the one who got Israel to worship both God and Baal, and so this woman in the church at Thyatira probably has nothing to do with Baal. But John tells us she calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives God's servants to commit ritual fornication and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. See, that's how pagan worship went in, in John's time. You would go to the, to the temple, you would bring your offering, if it was a particularly nice offering, an expensive offering, or you simply gave money to the priestesses, then you would, you would be involved in an act of ritual fornication with them. That was your reward for being such a good member of the pagan temple and bringing either a great offering or a lot of money. And then when the animal that you brought was, was sacrificed... They just spilled the blood of it. All they wanted was the blood sacrifice. All that meat, well, they'd carve that up and have steak. After your ritual fornication, you could stay for dinner. And, and the Christian folk who, who came into Greek culture as kind of the antithesis of that kind of worship began to say, look, those aren't real gods those pagan gods aren't real. There is only one true God and he's real. And those are false gods. Well, this prophetess apparently came into the Christian church out of her pagan temple and bought into this idea that those are false gods. But that ritual fornication thing, that's kind of fun. We could continue to do that. And that meat that was sacrificed to the false gods, well, they don't really exist. So it would be okay to go ahead and have steaks. I mean, the good parts of that old faith, we don't have to get rid of the good parts. We can still have illicit sex and eat steaks. Well, now I may be oversimplifying that or trivializing it, but that's what's at work here. God says, I've given her time to repent, but she doesn't want to change. She's enjoying her fornication. So watch. The word behold means watch. You watch. I will cast her down onto a sickbed, and I will cause those who committed fornication with her great trial, great tribulation, if they will not reject her behavior. Then I will kill her children with the plague. All of the children that have come out of this fornication are also going to die. That's pretty staunch. Then all the churches, not just the one at Thyatira, then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you in accordance with your deeds. Wow. This is another one of those places in the Bible that doesn't say we're saved by works. But it does say we're judged by works, that that God rewards according to works. And to those who bring compromise and, and filth and, and misguidance into his church, he brings a curse, a plague, he says, even punishment to their children, punishment on the person who did the wrong punishment on the people who have participated with them and punishment on their children. Our misguidance can bring punishment even to future generations. And that's what God promises here. That's what's going to happen to this Jezebel and her partners and her children. Now, A quick word, and I I said the same thing in the book. It's an aside, but I think it's very important. I have dear friends in the 21st century church who are part of denominations or movements within the church who use the term Jezebel in a very different way. Uh, A dear friend of mine was sexually molested by an elder in her church and hid it for months uh, said nothing about it, covered for the person, uh, left them alone and and didn't bring it to the attention of the leaders of her church because she knew she would be mistreated if she did. And some of us who counseled with her convinced her that that's a serious problem in the leadership of the church it needs to be dealt with. And so she took it to the governing men of that church and said, this is what happened. This is who did it. This is what they did. Here's the medical evidence. I, I got um, an examination that evening. Here's the medical evidence of what happened. And this person needs to be held accountable. That group of men took her claims under advisement and within two days had issued a statement ejecting her from their church excommunicating her from their church and their fellowship and told everyone they were not to have anything to do with her, never to speak to her again and not to listen to a word she said and labeling her a Jezebel. And so anytime she saw any of her church friends from that church at the grocery store, she would say, oh, hey, hi, how are you doing? And they would say, leave us alone, you Jezebel. And they condemned her because she dared to speak out against the patriarchy that saw fit to simply abuse her because she was a woman. That's not right. In anybody's universe, that's not right. And so I hope if you're ever a part of a church that puts a label like Jezebel on any dear daughter of God, that you'll stand up and say, no, we're not going to put labels on people here. Especially if that dear daughter has only voiced a concern or only raised a cry for help because she was abused, molested, mistreated, even raped at the hands of people who claim to, to represent God. The whole thing is, is just wrong. And the fact that someone would grab this name from the Bible, from the Old Testament and the book of Revelation, and label any sister in our time a Jezebel is absolutely uncalled for. If she's wrong, then employ the disciplinary action outlined in the book of Matthew. Go to her one-on-one and say, dear sister, you've done this and it's wrong. It hurts the church and see if she'll repent. And if she does, the Bible says, you've won that that discussion. It's over, let it go. If she won't repent, then grab somebody else who loves her and go to her, two of you or three of you and confront her with the problem. Say, dear sister, we don't want this issue to hurt our church, to hurt us, to divide us. Please, please repent or tell us what we have wrong here. And if she repents, the Bible says, You've won the discussion. It's over. Forgiveness around and, and go on down the road. But but to use a, a biblical name as a weapon against anyone is, is just so wrong. Don't be part of that. Verse 24, he says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who have not held to her teaching and have not participated in what people call the secrets of Satan. There's a really interesting point right there because so much of what goes on in the church today is treated like it's some secret formula, right? Uh, In fact, when I was a young Christian, there was a group of people that wanted to try and teach me to speak in tongues. And I said, oh, okay. It's a gift named in the Bible." why would i want to speak in tongues and they said because they're the secrets that god speaks in a language the devil can't understand well maybe but the devil's been around a lot longer than you and me and if there's a language that god speaks the devil was there in heaven when god was speaking it the devil probably knows and if he didn't know before you'll take it into your brain and you'll translate it into something in English that the devil can't understand. And then you'll go mouthing it around to a whole bunch of people and the devil will certainly know. It it just can't be that way. God doesn't work in secret. In fact, the Bible says that what's done in the darkness will be brought into the light, that God doesn't operate by mysticism and black arts. God operates right out in the wide open, that everything will come into the light so that everything can be known. God doesn't whisper secrets. God doesn't need secrets. He doesn't care if the devil knows what he's up to now or not. The devil was defeated at Calvary and now the devil can just try and deal with it, right? You haven't been part of this secrets of Satan club, so I'll not put any other burden upon you. Just hold on to what you have until I return. Hold on to what you have. There's our word of encouragement for today. The the work of God in your life doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be filled with a whole bunch of new revelation. I'm a person who loves learning, and so... I do podcasts. I listen to other people's podcasts. I read a whole lot of different things written by a whole lot of different people because I love to learn. I go to Bible study so that we can dive into verses in depth and and dissect them critically by by what the Greek says or what the Hebrew says. I'm not very good at that. But how do we learn more about what the Bible says? It matters to me to, to dive in deeper. But the Holy Spirit says you don't need any more burdens. (laughs) Boy, that's the truth, isn't it? You don't need anything else to worry about. Following God shouldn't be something that causes you anxiety. Amen. Just hold on to what you already know. The truth is that 90% of the people listening to this podcast are Christians. You know that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin that he died for your sin on the cross, that he was resurrected from the tomb, and that he's gone on to prepare a place for you and I when this life is over for us. That really is enough. You have a resource in Christ Jesus that you grab onto in moments of testing and trial and that you live by. I I was in the hospital a, a few months ago and somebody said, I'm hoping in Jesus. I said, perfect. That's perfect. And she said, because without Jesus pastor i have i have no hope wow that's all you need right there that's the truth and that kind of truth will minister to anybody who comes in contact with you people ask me theological questions all the time and i often try to venture some type of conjecture at least a guess about what their question might mean or how it might be resolved. I don't know. The greatest theological mind of the 20th century was Karl Barth. And and he wrote probably still the greatest systematic theology the world has ever seen. Systematic theology takes all the strands of Christianity and tries to tie them together in a systematic way. It's why it's called a systematic theology so that the understanding of sin relates directly to the understanding of redemption it relates directly to the understanding of divine healing which relates directly to the understanding of the nature of creation see it it it's all intermingled intertwined and put together in a system in a systematic theology karl barth wrote the best one ever and at the end of it three volumes at the end of the third book he says you know here i have endeavored to to begin to grapple with with the understanding of an unfathomable God. And I am reminded in the deepest of these pursuits of the first truth I ever learned, and still the greatest I've ever learned about God, that every idea in all these volumes can be summed up in the words of a children's song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You see, it's not the profound, deep thoughts that attract other people to God in us. It's that simple faith that says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus said that without that childlike faith, we couldn't enter the kingdom of heaven. That if anybody wanted To enter the kingdom of heaven, he had to first become like a little child. This is exactly what he's talking about. You've got enough. If you never go to another seminar, if you never read another book, if you never go to another Bible study, you've got enough to hold on to what you have until either you go to Jesus or he comes to you. And to the one who endures, and keeps my works until the end. He adds something here, doesn't he? Not only to the one who endures to the end, but the one who endures and keeps my works, does what's right until the end. I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter and crush them like shards of pottery. These are things that are said of the Messiah in the Old Testament. This is how the Messiah is pictured. To the one who endures to the end and and keeps his works, that one is in Jesus Christ. And as such, Christ's rule is his rule. Christ's victory is his victory. Just as I received it from my Father, I will give to him the morning star. The morning star is a symbol of hope. In the story of the betrayal of Jesus, Judas comes with the army of the guard. Judas comes with the guard into the garden at night in the pitch blackness and betrays Jesus with a kiss. And Jesus is is carried off. And Judas goes out, tries to return the coins, can't do it, the the, the rulers won't have it back. And so he goes and hangs himself. And it was night. In the pitch blackness, Peter does three times as as bad. He doesn't just betray Jesus once, but three times. And each time he does it a little more vehemently until the last time we're told he utters a curse. He swears that he doesn't know Jesus. He uses profane language to prove that he's not a Galilean and he doesn't know Jesus. And after the third time, just as Jesus prophesied, the rooster crows, right? Well, when does a rooster crow? It crows in that, in that time of the morning when there's just a hint of light in the eastern sky. It's just starting to show itself. Down by the horizon, you can see it's changing. The day is coming. There's a little bit of light. And that little bit of light to John is the symbol of hope. For Peter, there's hope that there wasn't for Judas because Judas hanged himself in the pitch blackness, the despair and the darkness. But Peter denies Christ, no doubt, three times. And then the rooster crows. But in the sky is the morning star. And just below that, the hint of of sunrise coming. To the one who endures, I will give to him the morning star. I will give him the greatest hope that there is in this world, the hope of redemption, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of a right relationship with God. I will give him the promise of light. Let the person with an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I hope today that you have hope. I hope that you know what it is to live in the light, to be able to hold what you have until Jesus returns or you go to him and to know that what you have is enough because it really is. Go make it a great day.